Hi everybody, it's the Week in the Tackle podcast, the podcast where we look back at the previous week in football and tackle the things that we thought were interesting. I'm Tom Rennie, alongside me is MLS superstar, Wonky Walker, Apple TV star and also bloke I saw on my TV on Saturday next to our friend Tim Horsey and his giant head, it's Mr. Brian Danny Dunseth. How are you mate, you alright? I'm 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 good, Rennie, but I'm not good. I'm 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 great. Great MLS Cup experience. I got stories to tell. I got people to throw under the bus. But I just got back from the hip doctor, um, Doctor Jared Dunn. You are an amazing human being. I appreciate you. I'm not so appreciative of the size of the needle that you injected into my hip earlier this <laughs> afternoon. Um, but hopefully the pain will subside and get me through the next couple of months before the old hip replacement gets locked in uh, and, and is on the table. But right now, I still have tears. I have tears of uh, of pain and telling the story how I thought I might shit my pants, Tom Rennie, uh, when that needle went into my skin. Sorry, Tim. Uh, but That's number one. I That's... fought through it. And here I we just go. want you to know, guys, that Tim Horsey <laughs> is not here with us for the recording today. He's going to pick this up in post. And I have been charged with noting down the swear time. So should have put that first one down. Uh, that's our first one in, inside minute one. Um, I'm looking forward to when you've had the hip replacement. So when it finally comes around, we need to do like a live stream. We should do mm. a live week in the tackle where you're on the on the serious good painkillers or like coming what's out, the yeah. and you're coming out of it like you've just had yeah. your wisdom teeth taken out. And we can ask you simple questions like Danny, um, what's what's the eyeball test on this? And we'll just show you a picture <laughs> of like Dennis Irwin and you can describe no. what you're what you're seeing. That's Jeez. what we need to do. Um That'd be amazing. But I'm, I'm glad you've made the show. I'm glad you're going to do this 40-minute recording um, through searing pain. I appreciate that. Um, there's loads to talk about today. I think we should avoid Manchester United only because they're going to be playing whilst we're talking. So we're recording mm-hmm. um, as the buying game. Well, they're warming up. So we'll get to see the game, but we're not going to see it. So we'll park that uh, because we do a lot of fun Man United stuff. But I will just say when Bournemouth scored the third this weekend... I did text Danny, I blame the Glazers. When Fulham scored their fifth, Danny texts me back, I blame the Glazers. Uh, so <laughs> that's it. That's it for that for today's show. Yeah, um, yeah. There are some interesting things to talk about, and I want to start with what will be a lengthy part of the show on, on MLS Cup, because um, there's loads of angles to this, and Danny was there working for Sirius XMFC. Very much enjoyed seeing you pitch side on the rare occasion in that first half when LAFC had an attack, or indeed the ball. Um, so I enjoyed that seeing that on our giant TV here and your, I mean, your face looked massive. Um, and I've got to say, <laughs> thank, your, thank you. Your, your Botox, um, in high definition, mm-hmm. certainly in UHD, which we have here looks incredible. Um, there's no, yeah, you, yeah, 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 sure. They, they're moving a little bit now, but we know there's your two sons there are off camera with strings on your eyebrows, pulling them up. We know that's what's really happening. Yeah. Um, and also Tim Horsey's face on a HD giant oh. screen. Yeah. I mean, that is... You hate to see it, literally. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so for those that have missed this, now some, some of you listening in Europe will not have seen this as the big story that it was, but Columbus Crew, um, storied original club in MLS history, um, with all this incredible... There's a YouTube documentary you can watch, which I've watched about how the club nearly went out of business, all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. There's a great narrative arc to, to Columbus Crew, which I'm sure Daniel will get into. But if you've missed it... They won MLS Cup this year, having won their conference final a few days ago, unexpectedly and dramatically against Cincinnati. They take on LAFC at their home ground, their football-specific home ground, lower.com field, and they beat LAFC 
who won it last year with that incredible late Gareth Bale goal, winning on penalties, and and they had incredibly actual Giorgio Chiellini in their teams. There's loads of narrative from this game. Um, Dunny, before we get into you talking about your experience, which we want to know about, I will yeah. just say, if you've been listening to Sirius XMFC this week, you did such a great job. You Thank did. you. Honestly, we we I you know I'm happy to talk some shit with you on this on this show. I'm just gonna write that down. Four minutes in, Tom says shit twice. Sorry, Tim. Sorry, Tim. Um, <laughs> but terrific job. The job that Danny was doing is the bit where you jump over the hoardings and you do on-field interviews. And there are player liaisons and people that are trying to help you get interviews, but. Um, I don't want to dig anyone out who does this for a living because it is a very hard job, but there's a lot of people who just go, um, you've won. You must be so happy. Why are you so happy? You're amazing. Why are you amazing? You're going mm. out tonight and, um, you know, fine. You've got to say something. You've got this amount of time with someone you weren't quite expecting, but it's not easy to ask good questions and have a good conversation. And I thought your questions were brilliant. You listened you. to the answers of what they said and had an actual conversation with these people. Um, and I just thought you did a terrific job. And uh, we posted the Wilfred Nancy one and several others on the Sirius XMFC Twitter page. Definitely watch that one if you can. The crew manager. Um, impossible is an opinion. If that is not great tattoo. <laughs> if that is not like on the walls of every right. every part of the stadium when the next season comes around, I, I don't know what they're doing. Um, so, right. Tell us about it. Tell us about being there. Tell us about the game. Tell us about why this is such a massive narrative for crew to have won it. A um, little bit of backstory uh, for those that don't know uh, that are newer to Week in the Tackle. Um, I, I actually played in the very first uh, game at the old historic crew stadium in 1999. That was the first soccer specific stadium that was built specifically for Major League Soccer and, and all the other stadiums that we had played to in 96, 97, 98 and through. 99, it was NFL stadiums or it was college stadiums or it was even high school stadiums. There was never there was never a soccer-specific stadium. So Lamar Hunt, who was the original owner of the Columbus Crew and Kansas City Wizards, um, who was a part of the Kansas City Chiefs, NFL, um, NFL Trophy, he was gifted uh, the name on the U.S. Open Cup trophy, the Lamar Hunt U.S. Open Cup trophy. So I played in that very first game in 99. In 2002, I was actually playing with the Columbus crew with Lamar Hunt in the stadium at Historic Crew Stadium. And we won. We beat the LA Galaxy to win the first trophy. And for England listeners over in England across the pond outside of the United States, the US Open Cup is the equivalent to the FA Cup. That would be the equivalency. It's the oldest historic tournament in the United States um, that has lasted through the test of time. So fast forward. Um, I end up being unceremoniously traded. Not my choice. I wanted to stay in Columbus. Loved everything about Columbus. Had just bought a house, um, and end up throughout the course of the years still have a, an incredible dynamic with people within the club, people that worked for the club, people that were no longer with the club, with the city, with fans, with former players, with former friends. So every time I go back to Columbus, I was I was include. I actually did. Should probably tell this as well. The previous owner, Anthony Precourt, when they did the rebrand, when they got away from the three guys wearing the hard hats, which I still think is one of the most iconic uh, pictures. The the TIFO that they did was amazing. It was cool. Um, I actually emceed that rebrand back in the day, and then I was a part of kind of the crew legends um, acknowledgement at Crew Stadium with the fans, with guys like Brian McBride and Brad Friedel, on and on and on. Um, so I. 
the legacy of Columbus, when I close my eyes and people ask me, you know, what do, I, I'm obviously tied with Real Salt Lake. I played for Real Salt Lake. I commentated Real Salt Lake. I've been at Real Salt Lake for years. But when people say, when you close your eyes, what what do you see yourself as? Like, where do you, what jersey are you wearing? I see myself wearing the Olympic team jersey, the one behind me, and I see myself wearing the Columbus Crew jersey. And actually, I can probably turn it really quick. You can see up on my wall over there, I've got that gray jersey is the U.S. Open Cup trophy one that we won, and that yellow one, and that was the emceeing the rebrand. So it's still a, a, a big, it has a big part of my life, Columbus. So to be able to go back and know that I was going to be there for the MLS Cup final, um, I've called games there. Um, I called games earlier there this year, but to be on the field, to feel the energy um, as we were walking to lunch before we went to the stadium, 3252 LAFC fans, Will Farrell walking down the street in Columbus, Ohio, the march to the match. We're in the Uber and we have to make a turn. It's you go from like nationwide arena walking down the street, you pass a couple of buildings. Then you have where the Clippers play, the baseball team plays their baseball stadium, and then you go under the bridge and then there's lower.com field. We were making a right by the arena, street shut down. We had to get out and we actually participated, not necessarily willingly, but we were walking to the stadium as the march of the match with Columbus <laughs> Crew was happening. And as I'm walking, you know, I'm saying hi to some fans, you know, have, having a conversation for a second. But Tom, I got to be honest with you, man. Like when people talk about the lack of culture and the lack of like supporter culture and not understanding, I, I wish everybody that on MLS, sorry, Tim, could have been there for these two, these two moments, the March, the match for LAFC, which were strong. I mean, they represented that whole, if you're looking at the field to the right-hand side behind the goalkeeper, that whole upper deck from corner flag to corner flag was all LAFC supporters. It was extraordinary. Um, and, and just to, I was I was envious. I was jealous. I was like excited to be there. You could feel the energy. Um, and then just to be a part of the game, incredible to know the people involved. Um, you know, and uh, uh, we'll talk about Dr. Pete Edwards and what his role was, Dante Washington, so many more old. I mean, I was on uh, all of a sudden my phone's blowing up because it's former teammates, historical teammates from the Columbus crew, not just from the teams that I played on, but like generations of guys all of a sudden got thrown into this text message. There's probably like 30 guys. And like my phone's just going bzz, 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 the whole game because they're talking about the game. And I'm like, guys, my battery's going to die. Leave me alone. Uh, <laughs> so I was concerned about that. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it was it was incredible. I mean, it was it was some sprinkles of rain. The stadium itself, you know, the, the, the rectangular st size of the stadium, all the fans are covered. Even when I was out and exposed in the rain a little bit, I had Tim Horsey's head to protect me like an umbrella. <laughs> so I never, yeah, not I not a drop of water hit me because Horsey's head was right behind me. Uh, we can talk about his lack of ability of preparation, execution, and then losing our chairs to the fact where he got bullied by hey, a photographer. You don't take on the up. photographers when it comes to chair war. The photographers yeah. are going to win. They are very terrible. I mean, it literally says Sirius XM FC in between these like two little slats and the girl's like halfway into my space. And I'm like, Horsey, you yeah. got to say something. I can't be the bad guy. He goes, what do you want me to say? What do you want me to say? You can't take the seat off Big Brenda. She is, she, you can't, she, you got to worry about Big Brenda's knees. She was elbows up, elbows up. You got to get the shot. Um, so... I want to talk yeah. about the post-match stuff because the interviews are great. And the quote you got off of Wilfred Nancy, uh, it, it's just great. And he's you know, such an endearing and interesting character you've spoken about previously on the program. 
But tell us a bit about the game because um, so I yeah. watched the game over here uh, on Apple free on on the season pass for the final, and obviously you've played it and would watch it for a living, so you, you've watched more than I'll ever watch. But I have watched a decent amount of crew games this year, as our, our listeners on Sirius kind of chose them as my team for my four team shortlist. So I have been getting into MLS by watching them. And I thought what was really interesting is all the things that you've been telling me and our colleagues have been telling me about the way they play football. Um, and they kept saying in the broadcast uh, about they will not compromise their principles. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you say these things and you've said yeah. it before. And it's not that I don't believe you, but it's almost like you need to see it. And um, in a game like this at 2-0 up, and that first half, and you'll, you'll tell us about this, they, the, the football was brilliant. The domination of LAFC from Columbus Crew in that first half was, was brilliant. The way they, they dominated the ball, they created chances, some controversy about the way the first goal is given as a penalty and all that, sure, but the second goal is unbelievable. But at 2-0 up, bearing in mind I watch a lot of West Ham games, I was saying to my wife, we're watching it on the TV, I was like, yeah, they'll shut it down now. They're gonna um, they're gonna get a couple of defenders on. They're gonna bring the big big center halves on. They're gonna go uh, six three one and see it through. Um, and it actually went more manic. It was yeah. like the only comparative I've got from my own personal experience is watching the championship playoff semifinals because there's mm. home advantage as opposed to a neutral venue of kind of Wembley. And when it's all on the line in those playoff semifinals, the games always finish four three. 5-7 on aggregate. Um, the Luton Town one against Sunderland last year is a great example of it. And it was just, tell us about the football. Tell us about the the performance from Columbus Crew. And tell us about the speed of this yeah. game, which was migraine-inducing. Yeah, so <clears throat> I'll go back a year ago. Um, I was working with ESPN covering the Eastern Conference playoffs. And I had back-to-back -back games with uh, CF Montreal, with Orlando City, and NYCFC. And Wilfred Nancy was the head coach at the time. And even going back after the 2020 COVID-induced campaigns for Major League Soccer, where all three Canadian teams had to leave their homes in Canada, be based in the United States, play their quote-unquote home games in the United States, as well as their away games, because you couldn't go back and forth over the border. Some guys had... Uh, some guys refused the COVID shots. Some guys did. So it became a, a really big issue back then. Thierry Henry was the manager and Wilfred Nancy was his assistant. And I remember thinking when Thierry Henry elected to walk away from CF Montreal and they were like, oh, we're going to go with Wilfred Nancy. And I was like, well, historically, Joey Saputo um, has a history of hiring French speaking managers. Uh, so not really surprised, but uh, that's not really a sexy pick. Mm. I mean, Thierry Henry and you go to Wilfred Nancy. I, I could have been more wrong. Um, I was friends. I, I'm friends with Kai Kamara, who at the time was playing up in CF Montreal. And I was asking him about Wilfred because I was having some great conversations with him. And I was really in, it was really enlightening because you have some managers that don't say anything. You have some managers that will kind of give you everything. You have some managers that are right in the middle. But there was like a, it's not just because he was French, you know, mm -hmm. because there's like a sexiness and like a, a philosophical sexiness to when he was trying to wax poetic about what he wanted from his team. But there was something more. There was a little bit more substance to it. And then all of a sudden, when you watch him play, you're like, oh, I I, I see it. I, I see what he's talking about. So when Tim Bezbachenko identified Wilfred Nancy as the guy that he wanted to um, come in and, and take over after Caleb Porter's contract wasn't extended, they had to spend money. 
and not too often. And you and I have this debate constantly is like, if you want your guy, go get your fucking guy. Sorry, Tim. Uh, they they wanted Wilfred Nancy and they went and they got Wilfred Nancy. Licks pen, puts it on the paper. Um, and Wilfred has been phenomenal this whole year. I've gotten to know him. I mean, I'm not, I, I don't suggest that we're friends by any means, but I've had enough Columbus crew games where I've been able to be on phone calls, be on Zooms like we are, and ask him about style of play, ideas about building out of the back the system that he plays with the three center backs, when he brought Camacho in, what exactly what he was looking for, when he slid Marrera into a right-side center back instead of an out-and-out winger, bringing in a Farsi, what he was looking for, the relationship and the development of what he saw between Darlington Nagby uh, and Aiden Morris. Um, I mean, remember, Lucas Zellerayon, one of the best number 10s in the league, decides that he wants the, the Monopoly money overseas. And what do they do? They bring in Diego Rossi. They spend the mo- spend some of the money on Diego Rossi. They've gotten younger, more dynamic. I would say actually better because Cucho has more movement. Diego Rossi's got more uh, verticality, if you will, as opposed to Zellerion operating underneath. And I love Lucas Zellerion as a player. Mm. Uh, Alex Matan, who was this really dynamic kind of Haji-esque young Romanian coming over who was sent out to pasture by Caleb Porter, who probably would have been gone all of a sudden, has this new lease on life. He's an absolute starter. They go get Christian Ramirez. They bring him back from Scotland. He's got a role to play. They Just everybody got better. And the the speed of play, the style of play, to your point, there, there's a compromise, but it's not a compromise in terms of how they view the game, what they want to do with the ball. The compromise is, hey, we know we're going to fatigue out some players. We know we're going to have to make some adjustments. I mean, to bring in Christian Ramirez, to move Diego Rossi a little bit differently, to take Matan off, but then to add Zawatsky and to give him a little bit more bite, you know, a little bit more fresh legs. Losing Darlington Nagby with, what, 15 minutes remaining because systematically he was being fouled to an extent where he was just, I talked to him afterwards, his body, just, he was limping. I saw Marrera at the after a game party celebratory party he was limping in i was joking with him i was like doesn't hurt as bad as it usually does huh and he's like nope feels a little bit better today and he was (laughs) visibly limping in so um yeah man the story saved the crew you know at the time the systematic i i would say um compartmental compartmentalization of what the club was happening the idea of trying to get a stadium downtown the building of the training facility, the Haslam's coming in, Dr. Pete Edwards, who was the doctor from day one of the club, watching all this bull happen behind the scenes, sorry, Tim, to then be on the field and to get to talk to him for a few moments. Um, if the game was at Bank of California Stadium, would it have looked different? Would it have felt different? Would there have been a significant home field advantage for LFC? Absolutely. I still don't think that would have changed one iota of how Wilfred Nancy and Columbus crew play. Mm. But there's something to be said. This is something that I don't think was talked about a, a lot. And I don't know. I, I haven't watched the broadcast. Um, this was the first time these two teams have, have faced each other this season. Mm. First time underneath these two managers have actually met and played. Against fourth time they'd met ever. Ever. And it was all yeah. LAFC had had won the, the, the previous three games. Crooks never scored. It was like 7-0 on aggregate, something like that. And, and so I think LAFC is the most dominant team in the Western Conference. Had their schedule not been as complicated, if you talk about CONCACAF Champions League, you talk about CONCACAF Champions League final against Club Leon back and forth. I think I want to I want to say it was maybe their 57th game of the season in all competitions. Um, the, if they didn't have all the 
extensive outside of Major League Soccer schedule games with Campeones Cup and Leagues Cup and all of those things, would they have probably won the Western Conference and had home field advantage subsequently? Yes, but the reality is they didn't. This is what happens with big clubs. Um, and so Wilfred Nancy, Tom, I, I just think they're starting. Mm. I, 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 I mean, two MLS Cups and a Campeones Cup in three years, right? This group of players, they've gotten younger. Their average mean age is anywhere between 24 to 25. Um, with this coach, with Bezbachenko as the general manager, with what the infrastructure looks like, with the amount of money that's available to them from this ownership group, I, I think you're talking about in real time, in three to four years, we're talking about a quote-unquote super club. Mm-hmm. Like we were talking about at a time for Atlanta United, what we've been talking about with LAFC. Um, and, and ultimately, what we're going to, I think, get into the conversation, the narrative, obviously, with Inter-Miami. But right now, I think you're looking at some really mean years for the Columbus crew. And there's one other thing I wanted to ask you, because obviously you were there um, in the stadium on the day and you were at the end that uh, LAFC were, I'll say, attacking in the first half, though there wasn't much attacking going on. Um, At the other end is where Crew scored their two goals. Uh, Look, There is some controversy in the handball in the penalty. I I won't ask you about that because it's a handball for me. Yeah, it it could be, it could not be. It was given, it wasn't going to get overturned. There's not much ground for us there, I don't think. But I did want to ask you this, because I think there's something really fun about that difference between being in the stadium and watching on TV. Because when you're watching on TV, when that Amundsen ball goes through, uh, after that, whatever it was, 30-pass move, yeah. maybe more than that, for, for what is the winning goal, the Yeboah goal, there's that bit where the pass that he is playing looks so... Uh, daring hmm. on TV, you don't know your bow is there, so you think he screwed this up, he screwed yeah. this pass up. It's the end of a passing move, there is no runner. Yep. You you assume, uh, it's Hollingshead at fullback, he's going to be there. Yep, and then there's that great bit where you know, I wanted crew to win, so I was like, Oh, he's not there, and there's the runner, and then he's picked yeah. it up, and then he's yeah. through. Um, and there's that great bit, and I always think about, I know I use any excuse to bring up the, the conference league final. But there was that great bit I mentioned to you where Paqueta plays it through to Bowen. Mm-hmm. And there was some guy, Dave, who I met on the night, not seen again since. And he's like, Tom, he's going to score here. And you're like, shut up, Dave. And he's like, he's through. <laughs> this is it. This is the moment. And you're like, shut up, Dave. Um, and then he scores and it's brilliant. But you had that vantage point where you could see it almost right down the barrel. So you Light must up. have yep. seen that whole passing move. And you yep. are one of the... 20,000 people of the millions watching who knew your bow was in before mm. anyone else watching. What well, tell us a little bit about the goal. Tell us a bit about your vantage point seeing it. Yeah, so there there was there was three moments. And, and by the way, with Marrera and Amundsen, those are both outside backs that are playing as as internal center backs on either shoulder of Camacho. And remember Amundsen, he came over um after an ACL tear that from the previous left back and he came over. Um, it was uh, Sands tore his ACL and Sands was unbelievable to start a season. So they go get Amundsen, who's the backup left back at NYCFC sitting on the bench. So now he's the starting left back at Columbus. And then all of a sudden he's shifted into a center back, left side center back to get Yaya Bo on the field. There was probably three to four passes where you have Kike Oliveira trying to press Amundsen, the right attacking winger in the front three, is trying to press the left-sided center back. Um, Hollingshead is trying to be acutely aware of the speed advantage that Yaya Boa obviously has against him. And there was a couple balls that were like, 
my so my hand I, i'll be passing from amundsen these balls are curling around like just staying in line staying inside the line but curling and yobo is just on his horse into the corner and Hollingshead was trying to find the balance and I've been there and it's terrible. It's the worst feeling in the world when you're isolated, when you know you're coming up against the, the athleticism and the verticality and the speed of a player. And you know that the guy passing the ball, if there's no immediate pressure, like you got to start, you got to start cheating a little bit. The, the ball that leads to the goal, there were three balls that led up to that. And Amundsen were peeling balls down the side, just curling them around the sideline, around Oliveira, around Hollingshead. So when he finally hit that ball, that goes inside internal left shoulder of Hollingshead, where Yaya Boa then makes just a straight diagonal run across. Hollingshead was trying to anticipate that that ball was going to be hit, that he could maybe cut that ball out or at least close down Yaboa a little bit quicker than the previous three times. So it's not as if he's completely cheating and jumped the shark, but Amundsen, he took the chance. And as he hits that ball, you can see Hollingshead go, oh, <laughs> and like, sorry, Tim. But it's worth it because the dramatic effect. Then uh, that's where Yaboa comes out of nowhere. And by the way, not for nothing. Total left-footed player. The easier of the finish is to open up his hips and curl it around the goalkeeper far post side net. Instead, he hits it with his inside or outside of his left foot and comes across and kind of catches Kripo underneath his, uh, his left armpit. But yeah, I mean, it, it's almost in the moment, the ball that's played into Yaboa in the finish negated what the buildup looked like until it was obviously pointed out that that was like a minute's worth of possession. And it wasn't just possession with like releasing pressure. It was possession, play in, play back, play through, play the drag midfielders out. Ilya Sanchez getting tucked in. Where's Palacio getting pulled? You know, is, is uh, Mario getting sucked out? The possession with purpose was to try to move players around to get that one ball that creates maybe an extra five yards on that on that initial run from Yaboa. So, yeah, it was it was that's going to be a reference. the The cup final will be a reference point for that build up and that pass with that goal. Um, I want to move on to some other stories from this weekend. Before we do that, before we leave yeah. MLS for now, we're back with with MLS when the new season uh, gets underway, when preseason starts, all that sort of stuff. Um, anything we not mentioned? Any any final thoughts now the season is wrapped? You've been heavily involved in mm. so much of it. It's been a new broadcast pattern, right? The whole yeah. the whole of MLS changed dramatically with the the Apple contract, which which goes on for several more years. Uh, plus the, the changes in format to, to the playoffs as well, burning up to MLS Cup. Um what are your final reflections on the season now you've you've done your work for this year? Yeah, I I mean, you know what it's like when when you get the opportunity to work for a company, um you want to put your best foot forward, you know? You you want to you want to prove that not only the bosses who gave you the opportunity, everybody that speculates that does he deserve to be a part of something and then ultimately the individual pride to be a part of it. Um a normal MLS season I would have averaged around 32 to 34 games for Real Salt Lake. And then in there, maybe four or five, six games for ESPN over the last couple of years. Uh, I ended with 49 matches for Apple. Um, and okay. obviously, League's Cup has a big role to play. Um, it's been really fun, man. It's been really fun. I've, I've been very, very fortunate. You know, 
the guy that I work with uh, regularly, Max Bredos, he's one of the best human beings possible to be around. I've been actually did my very first game with him back in 2006 on Fox Soccer Channel. It was David Beckham versus the Hong Kong 11. It was like 4 a.m. kickoff time. <laughs> and to think about 2006, 2007 to all the way now to still be working with somebody is very rare. And he's and he's not a kid. Sorry, Tim. He's a really good guy. He's really fun to be around. So to have that much fun, uh, to see where you know this league is going, to see the investment, knowing what Apple has done, is trying to do, knowing some of the future plans uh, ahead of the next season, um, knowing obviously the Lionel Messi effect had such a huge impact and has this enormous trickle-down effect that people can't possibly wrap their heads around, much less myself. Um, yeah, it's been it's been really fun. Uh, and to see everyone uh, at Parlay in Columbus let their hair down, all of the Apple English and Spanish, all of the Fox English and Spanish, the SiriusXM family, we were all there. Even Tony Miola was taking jello shots out of the syringe and drinking espresso martinis and going like, oh, dude, this is great. Why am I so wired? And I was like, because you're drinking an espresso martini at 1030 yes. at night. Yeah. Uh, but he looked like Freddy Krueger, man. They were like syringes with jello shots. He's got like three of them. He's like, these are great. Jello. I was like, ah, it's a little bit more than jello, you knucklehead. Wreck yes. it, Ralph. But uh, uh, no, I mean, yeah, to be fair, in Tony Miola's hands, they might have been the giant syringes they used to inseminate cows for all we know. It's a great visual picture. Yeah, it's all there. Yeah. I don't know if he inseminates cows at the weekend. We'll find out if he ever talks to us again. <laughs> um, right. There's a few other bits I wanted to talk about on the program before we're out of time today. And I know you were very busy this weekend, so you wouldn't have seen all the Premier League stuff. So I won't throw anything too kind of specific at you for now. But I did want to talk to you broadly about Aston Villa, who we spoke mm. a bit about on last week's program. What a game. And yeah. well, on last week's show, we were like, well, well, we'll talk about a title run and we'll talk about you know, being, look, if they're in it and they are in it currently, they are the fourth favourites to win it. That in itself is a terrific achievement. So like, you know, to say they're in the title race does not mean we think they're going to be champions. But if mm. you put 20 teams in the list, they would be fourth in it currently, though technically they're third over City currently, but whatever. Um, since we last spoke, they beat Man City on, mm. on the Wednesday. They then beat Arsenal on the Saturday, the late game on the Saturday. Um and I was working on this game at the weekend and it was just, it really felt important. It felt like an important game of football. And the the incredible thing about Aston Villa, I, and I'll tell you this right now, I want them to win the league so much. I would love really? to see Aston Villa win the league. Firstly, we all need someone who's not Man City to win it, right? Mm. Like with, with all due respect to Manchester City supporters who were there before the Sovereign Wealth takeover, <laughs> the dominance of Man City in the Premier League is damaging to the Premier League. And in the end, it's going to be damaging to Manchester City. There needs to be other teams that do win it. There needs to be a flux of clubs and champions. And if you're not getting that, something has gone dramatically and drastically wrong in your league and it's got to be fixed. Um, don't take it personally. If you don't mm. win it this year, I'd be more than happy for City to win it next year. But someone else must win it every single year. That's what the league needs. That's what um, you need. You just don't know it yet, right? It'll be good for you for that to happen. Um, and look, Liverpool and Arsenal will be a good stories. But Aston Villa, the journey they have been on in the last few years from circling the plug hole, at the back end of Randy Lerner's time in yeah. charge when there was no yeah. further investment. Before that, when Martin O'Neill was in charge and Gabby Bonahor and John Carew and Stuart Downing and Ashley Young, really good team. And they were a top four challenging team for a few years, Aston Villa. 
financial issues. It fell apart. They got relegated. They come back up with Dean Smith in charge, who is um, now at Charlotte. Of course, a big Villa man. He comes up with Jack Grealish. Jack Grealish, brilliant in the championship, and then goes on to have a couple of excellent seasons at Villa as they stay up. They sell Grealish. They lose a cup final I was at, the Carabao Cup final. And at that point, their captain and their manager are Villa fans who've got them up. And it all felt together. And then suddenly they go. Dean Smith is sacked. Grealish has been sold. They never quite recover on the field from it. They hire Steven Gerrard, who was more interested in playing charity games for Liverpool than he was in managing Aston Villa. <laughs> he takes his career so unseriously, he is managing in Saudi Arabia for as much cash he can stuff into his pockets. And that's fine. But it shows you that he never really took himself seriously in management in the same way that someone like Uno Emery does. I don't think he'd consider going to Saudi Arabia during what he would consider the peak years of his career. Um, the game the weekend, Danny, I think it was nine. I haven't got it in front of me now, but it was eight or nine players in the team against Arsenal were Steven Gerrard players. Mm. He hasn't gone to a sovereign wealth sugar daddy and said, get me Erling Haaland. He said... No, I've got Ollie Watkins here. I'll make something of him. I've got John McGinn's fat ass here. I can make something of that. Um, and I mean that in a positive. They call him brave ass because of of how amazing those buttocks are at protecting the ball. It's what leads to the winning goal against Arsenal. Um, and you could go on, Douglas Luiz and Bubakar Kamara and, mm. and even Diego Carlos, who was injured, to be fair, for Steven Gerrard, but he was there when Gerrard was there. Um he just gets them all to do the things they're supposed to be doing. And I know that sounds yeah. a little bit rudimentary, but the amount of times you go to a football match, and Danny, you analyse football matches all the time, and you're really good at being able to pick, that's why this goal happened. There's always a reason why this goal happened. There's always a reason why this play happened. And it's a split-second decision gone wrong, or you didn't mark this person, or you got yeah. blocked off and couldn't react to it. There's always some reason why a goal happened. And there's always some reason why you did a positive thing or a negative thing. It just looks to me right now that all these players are playing way above themselves because they believe in Unai Emery. Unai Emery is seemingly in his career better punching up than he is mm. being the favourite. Yep. Um, the energy these players have at the moment is absolutely extraordinary. The 15 home wins, there's nothing better than a home crowd that they feel expectant to win. But yeah. it's not like their birthright, you know, like sometimes you go to a Man U game or something and you're like, oh, we deserve to win. I mean, West Ham do it as well. Mm -hmm. You know, oh, we're playing Nottingham Forest today. Of course we should win. And then when you're not yeah. one nil up in 10 minutes, everyone's got the raving ump. You know, it just feels like the wind is in their sails right now, Dunny. Tell, tell us a bit about what that sort of feels like and, 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 and how this last week must have been for Aston Villa. Incredible. Yeah, I'm, I'm not a big fan of the the historical references about you know, results when it ends from one season and goes to another season. I'm I'm not, I've never been a big fan, but I do think it tells a story and it's a story of confidence. Right. And, and I do think it, it, it plays a role in the group of players saying, let's pick up where we left off, you know, let, let's, and then all of a sudden it's momentum. Um, I, I will say, I believe that Aston Villa is a massive club. Mm. It might not be the massive club that we're talking about with Man City or Arsenal or Liverpool or Man United, you know, right now, but it's still historically a massive club. So more European Cups than Arsenal have got, which their yeah, fans will delight it, in reminding you. And and people from the outside or more recent fans won't understand that until you actually teach them that, right? Unai Emery, extraordinarily successful outside of PSG and Arsenal. And PSG, explainable. Same issues that every other manager's had. Arsenal, following Arsene Wenger, 
and not only as the manager, but the infrastructure side behind the scenes, which was a complete mess in the transition to responsibility of of all of the dynamics of running the club. Um, Sven Mislintent, um, you know, David Luiz, Mesut Ozil on the field. Was he sick? Did he have a sore back? All of these things. It it was, it was just a really hard time for Unai Emery, and I think it got piled on with the good evening stuff that got taken out of, not not. It was certainly not taken out of context, but it got it spun out of control. I don't think the spotlight and the pressure is anywhere close on him that it was at PSG and Arsenal. I think that's one of the things that he's benefited from. I think it's a very similar conversation um, when we talk about Deserbi and we talk mm-hmm. about Brighton, is that it's almost easier for these players to find this type of success collectively because individually the pressure isn't on them if they have a poor game like it would be if they Kai Havertz if Kai Havertz was balling out at Aston Villa and had a a crappy game it's certainly not going to take the amount of heat that he takes being a part of Arsenal Football Club right Calvin Phillips if Calvin Phillips is balling out at Aston Villa or he finds himself uh, outside of the team it's not as big of a deal as it is for him not getting a single second with Akanji and John Stones playing over him at Man City. So there's a benefit to what's happening at Aston Villa right now. I gently remind everybody that a month and a half ago, Tottenham had a five-point lead, was top of the table, and everybody was telling us that Ange Postacoglu was the best manager in the world. And then five consecutive games, they take one single point. Now, this weekend was a great result, but it just shows you that we can exalt these teams and all of a sudden, bit of a wobble, things go sideways. The challenge for me for Aston Villa is to maintain the success that they're having in Europe, maintain the success they're having right now in the table, and to solidify themselves at the end of the season as a dual performer. That they can challenge in an FA Cup run. That they can make a deep run in Europe. That they can push for a top four, clear qualification for Champions League next season. That is going to be that next level of success for Unai Emery. And as of right now, I certainly believe that they're capable of doing that. And I mean, my other question would be, why do you think that they are dismissed as title contenders? Like, Mm. and I I get the obvious reasons that Man City exists, right? So, you know, Mm. we're better now on this show. Why do you think it's so, do you think it's because we've all lost hope as football fans of these sorts Um, of stories? Do you think 20 years ago, we might've been a bit more... You know, like when Newcastle came out of nowhere, then Blackburn came out of nowhere before yeah. it became, and even Arsenal to a point came out of nowhere yeah. before they challenged United, you know, late 90s, early noughties. And then at the Abramovich thing, it changed football for, for the worse, in my view. Yeah. Um, why do you think it's, it's it's so difficult for us to believe it can happen? Because I, I still feel like the Leicester City story is is almost unbelievable. It's almost like it it didn't happen, even though it absolutely happened, and it was a, it was a glorious time for all of us to celebrate football. Um, I think the schedule's more difficult now than it was for Leicester City. I think for teams like Chelsea and Tottenham, because they are established heavyweights in the Premier League conversation, that it would be easier for them to challenge for the Premier League title because they're not in European football. They don't have to deal with the significance of travel and games and short turnaround and recovery. Um, and, and and I would say maybe in particular this year, had Ange Postacoglu and Spurs 
not plummeted as quickly as they did during that five-game run after mm. 10 games unbeaten, maybe there is a little bit more self-belief in, or I, I would say collective belief in Unai Emery and Aston Villa for the run that they're in right now. What, two points off the top of the table? No, no. The, if somebody would have said that this team would have been qualifying for the round of 16 in Europe uh, and, and would have been two points off the top of the table as were what heading into the second week of December, people would have said, well, hold on, something's got to be significantly wrong. Like, wh- what? What? Okay, so maybe Tottenham's Tottenham. What the hell's happening with Chelsea? But like, what's happening with Newcastle? What's happening with Manchester United? What's happening with Arsenal? What's happening with Liverpool? What's happening with Man City? So I think that's probably why. I mean, I, what was it, two seasons ago? Wasn't Aston Villa top of the table around this time? They started on a Friday. It was when Jack Grealish was still at Arsenal and 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 they were like, Maybe three years ago, but that Friday night they won, and they, it was like for the first time in 37 yeah. years, Aston Villa's top of the table. You and always then, get that sort of stuff in the first 10 weeks. That's the difference yeah. is we're in, we're heading towards week 17. Yeah, you know, yeah. we're coming up towards the halfway point in a couple of games. Um, it's a it's a big one, man. It's a big one. Would you be happy to see him win it? Would it delight you? Be happier to see Manchester United win it, or just I don't yeah. But know. we're talking about realistic things here. Put, put consistent performances together. Um, I, I'd be happy for Onai Emery. I, I yeah, really would. I'd be happy for the club. I, I'd be happy for the the supporters and the group of players. Um, they're fun to watch. That that's for me. The I, I I know I see. I use this eyeball test, right? The the eye markers, the visual aids, if you will, of dominance. I enjoy watching them play. Yeah. They got a little bit of shit houseery. Sorry, Tim. A little Dunsethery. They've got a brilliant goalkeeper who's always a big part of the show. They've got a fun group of players. Um, I think they're super dynamic at times. Yeah, I mean, if you're not, if you're going to say none of the quote unquote quote unquote established big six are going to win it, who do you want to win it? I wouldn't have a problem with Aston Villa winning it. Yeah. Um, two other quick things, Danny, before we run out of time today, and I, I wanted to get your view on this specifically because I thought about you when I saw it. Um, Tottenham four, Newcastle one. Uh, was a scoreline this weekend, which was... My uh, fault. I jinxed it. Well, it was unexpected, uh, this one. Um, jinxed it. Terrific performance again from Tottenham Hotspur. Uh, though Newcastle, you know, I, I feel no sympathy for the kingdom of Newcastle United, but having to play the same team every four days for like three weeks, you're going to get results like this. Um, there was a moment in the game where Vicario, the Tottenham mm-hmm. goalkeeper, mm-hmm. catches the ball. He then looks at uh, Callum Wilson in the eye and does a kind of like pokes his tongue out, does a weird kind of what's up kind yeah. of like thing. Like in a Jordan face. Pickford. Yeah, Jordan Pickford yes. thing. Yeah, Really like weirdly animated, like there was some sort of thing going on there. I think earlier in the game, Callum Wilson had smiled at him or something, but but nothing nothing too nothing too deep. That leads to a, a, a bit of a, a, a row post-match where Callum Wilson mm. says Vicario um, lacked respect and he said there are ways of winning and ways of losing and that is not um, the way to go about things. Um, Callum Wilson then took to the gram. Um, yeah. In fact, Vicario took to the gram, screenshotted the picture of him and Callum Wilson having an on-field row, saying, respect is given to everyone that respects me. Um, mm. I just wonder what your thoughts were about this weird little yeah. schoolboy spat between these two players and what you might have done if a goalkeeper had given you the, uh, how do I put this, a tonguing? Yeah, during, the tongue. The game? <laughs> he t- 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 Does that work? Um, when I when I saw it, I think there was a coming together on one of the crosses. Like there was a bump between the two players. And listen, goalkeepers are weirdos. It's a well established fact. They're they're just a different breed. Um, 
and 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 I, who knows, man? I like my, this is my whole thing. If you don't, if if you don't want someone to take the out of you, don't get absolutely smashed by the opponent. Like Vicario can do whatever he wants because he smashed them. They smashed Newcastle. And so, like, if if you're gonna if you're gonna have a pop at him in the press, if you're gonna you know handbags at fifty paces, um, do do your talking on the field. I'm not. I just I'm not a big I'm not a big fan of like the whole Twitter and the gram and like the post match where nobody's around and you can have a shot and act like the tough guy and all that stuff. Although. I do believe Callum Wilson would absolutely smash Vicario oh, if it was a real throwdown. Brutal, brutal beat down. Uh, yeah, there, there, there'd be two hits, him hitting Vicario and Vicario hitting the floor. That would be it. Uh, but I don't know, man. I just think it's, I, for me personally, just do your talking on the field. Yeah. Um, the the other part, like the going back and forth, who cares? I'm, I'm always here for a little bit of banter, but I didn't think it was anything outrageous to the extent of, You've got to go out of your way in a post-game pressure to start talking about respect. You earn respect on the field. You yeah. lose respect when you get absolutely smashed. Yeah. Uh, and in Callum Wilson's case, I have absolutely no sympathy because about four Christmases ago, um, West Ham played Bournemouth at the Vitality mm. Stadium. And Bournemouth scored a 94th and 95th minute winner against West Ham in that game. Uh, and West Ham were in relegation sort of trouble at that point. And Slavon Bilic was about to get the sack because things were going so badly for West Ham. Um, Callum Wilson scores. The goal was a, a, a originally ruled out. There was no VAR at this time. Another reason mm. why I'm always going to be quite pro VAR is this goal. Um, he clearly punches the ball in the net. It is a handball, clear as day. Callum Wilson knew it. The referee, the crapper of the two Madleys, knew it. Um, but because they weren't 100% sure, they decided to give the goal. But Callum mm. Wilson knew he did the old Maradona. And in the post match interview, now look. You do it because I'm going to win. I'm going to yeah. win, and that's the way it goes. Yeah. In the post-match, and I, I'm annoyed about it, but I'd like to think I wouldn't do the same thing, but if my team did it, I'd, I'd begrudgingly accept it. Yeah, um, yeah. But in the post-match interview, the interviewer says to Callum Wilson, did you get a touch on that cross at the end? And he said, yeah, I got a touch on it. And the interviewer says, a touch of what? And Wilson says, touch of magic. Oi, oi, and just shoots off, <laughs> um, condemning Slavin Bilic to the sack and West Ham to defeat. That's so, pretty good, though. <laughs> it was very good, uh, but it but it ends my sympathy for life uh, for Callum Wilson. I'm afraid to say. Um, a touch of magic. I got to write that down. That's a good one. It's pretty good. The interview is quite good. He's super. He's super happy and smiley about it. But uh, I prefer this weekend's interview personally. Um, one final story I did want to bring up to you, Danny, and it's it's a significantly less funny story, but I would like your view on it because it's uh, one of those things we talk about quite a lot on this show, actually, and I know you bring it up on Counter-Attack as we have on the, on the football show as well, on our Sirius XM shows, um, the treatment of officials. And this mm, has been an God. ongoing narrative uh, in English football mm. recently, European football, the confrontation with officials are getting um, way out of hand. The criticism is way out of hand. The pressure on them has never been bigger. And something happened in Turkish football on Monday night that I'll, I'll just bring those that haven't seen this up to speed and, and get your view on it. Um, so all football in Turkey is suspended. They have suspended it immediately after a club president entered the field of play on Monday night post-game and punched the referee. Um, I'll try the pronunciations here, so forgive me if they're all wrong. Uh, the referee is Halil Umut Mela, um, and he is on the field and the 
president of Angukuru, uh, Faruk Kosha, runs onto the field. He is the president and he approaches the referee and you sort of think, you know, there might be a confrontation here. I don't appreciate this sort of thing, but you don't expect what you do see, which is a right hook on the referee's face, which A, sends him to the ground, B, sends him to hospital, um, and then sparks chaotic scenes after the match. As, By the as, way, it broke his eye orbital. It, it's confirmed it broke his eye orbital as well. I, I hadn't seen that. I knew he was in yeah. hospital. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a horrible, horrible incident. Um, the country's president, uh, President Erdogan, spoke out about it, saying it condemns the attack. And when a, a right-wing demagogue is condemning you, you might have overstepped the mark. I don't know. Um, but the other element to this is that the president of the Turkish Football Federation um, said that football matches are not a war. There is no death at the end. Not all teams can become champions at the same time, and we all mm. need to understand this. We invite everyone to take responsibility. He goes on to say the irresponsible statements of club presidents, managers, coaches, and TV commentators targeting referees have paved the way for this vile attack today, which I thought was a really strong statement. Um, and they have cancelled all football in Turkey who knows how long that will last? Um, shocking, despicable, cowardly thing to have done. Uh, and another example of, you know, there has been, I think, maybe pointed escalation when it comes to officials. And I think there is a decent response to that in that we are trying to have a conversation at least about there is a line. We shouldn't cross that line. You know, Jurgen Klopp's comments on Paul Tierney being corrupt last year, we called out and mm. said that was despicable and shouldn't have been allowed yeah. to happen. Miko Arteta's comments post-match about things being a disgrace and the referees getting stuff wrong. Whereas the line, was that over it? Was that not? That was an interesting discussion point, which is still not resolved, by the way. Um, Danny, your, your thoughts on this? Because, you know, you're a broadcaster, you have played... And sometimes I think there's legitimate conversation to be had about mistakes and refereeing and VAR and all that sort yeah. of stuff. That's part of the pageant of this whole thing. Um, but if people are so pathetic, they would punch the referee because the decision hasn't gone their way. Do people like you and I need to stop talking about referees completely because it, it riles up morons too much? Yeah, I, I would say it's definitely certainly a wake up call in terms of the conversation, the narratives and and how how we all in our business cover this. Um, listen, I, I can understand from a team employee's point of view that calls that when they go against them can build and lead to a point of termination and job termination and players being traded, sold, losing their job, contracts terminated. Managers are always the first to go. Uh, general managers, sporting directors, team presidents, obviously the culpability of losing and what happens then because you're judged on your results. And I understand that referees' decisions, while sometimes fallible, can lead to moments in which outrage can kind of teeter into a gray area. But something like that. Uh, he, he's he, This gentleman, if that's even the word I should be using, should be banned for life from football and all forms of football. Um, he probably is going to face uh, severe sanctions, um, what that looks like, that's up to those in charge. I would assume that jail time is certainly around the corner, uh, or at least some type of assault charges. And I would, I would absolutely hope that this referee files a lawsuit to take this gentleman for whatever he possibly can. Um, when I saw him rush the field, I, I was the same as you. I was like, well, he's probably going to 
it looked like he was aggressive enough that he was going to bump it. But when that hand came over and he, he threw that haymaker, I think we all just stopped in our tracks when we saw it on social media. So, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think it's, it's enough of a concern. I mean, listen, we, we had it here at the end of the season or during the playoffs with a couple of comments that came from Vanny Sartini, head coach of the Vancouver Whitecaps. He's going to miss six games. And I believe his fine is somewhere around 40 to $50,000 to start the start at the start of next season because of his comments made after the match against LAFC. Um, you gotta, we, we've got to figure out how to, to rein this back in. And I know the horse has left the stable, but I think we all in general have to figure out how to rein this back in because mistakes are going to be made. I I think it's just a fallacy to think that VAR and all the technology that is available is going to be the defining factor, making every single call 100% absolutely correct. That's just not the case. We're humans. We do make mistakes. There is you know, there, there is failure that is abject failure that will absolutely happen at some point. So yeah, I, I don't, I don't even know the right way to to end something like this, but it's, mm. it's really scary when you see someone at that level of football in charge of, of that level of a club feel as though that he was riled to a point where that's the action that he felt he needed to take in the moment against a referee who was just out there doing his job. Yeah. Um, and it, just for me, it made me think about Roma at the back end of last season, Nanti Taylor and his family at the airport when Jose yeah. Mourinho kind of waited for him in the car park and then wouldn't back down from his criticism of Anthony Taylor uh, following that end of season game. And the way the Turkish Football Federation have responded to this by saying, well, no more football then. Like mm. if you can't, like the referees are a very significant part of it. And without them, you know, it's a cliche, but without them, we don't have a game. We can't put this on. And for them to do this, I thought that was terrific. And I thought that there's some discussion right now about whether IFAB might put rules in that only the captain can talk to the referee in football matches unless the fo- the referee calls an individual over, which I would absolutely support. I think that would work quite well. And I, I think that's a good way to stop it, um, what we see. But I was thinking about Anthony Taylor and I was thinking about kind of referees going down Asda at the weekend to get their shopping with their kids and suddenly some entitled, I don't know, what's the, let's say West Ham fans so no one comes at me as a go at uh, as a go at the referee, you cost us the game this weekend, you so-and-so, you know, in front of their kids or whatever. And I thought the stance that they have taken, now this is a massive incident, so it had to have a massive response, and I get that. But let's say that after a game at the weekend, a manager, which we have seen, let's say Guardiola runs on the field to have a go at a referee and gets in his face and squares up to him. Let's say Pochettino after the Chelsea Tottenham game a couple of weeks, uh, Chelsea City game a couple of weeks ago, where he does that thing where he walks towards the referee and, and looks like he's going to scream into his face. Yeah. What if the Premier League and FA were like, right, if you do that and we see that, all your games are off. Hmm. And then and then come and complain to me about your schedule. There's no game next weekend. There's no game the weekend after, but you still got to play those games by May the 30th. And... You know, that might be a punishment for the other team, sure. But it might be like, right, last week of the season, because we had to cancel two of your games earlier because Pochettino acted like a baby in this moment. Um, I'm sorry, last week of the season, you're playing Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday and Saturday because we have told you that it has to be done by May 30th. And you did something we find so egregious and awful, we had to cancel your games. And we told you beforehand it was going to happen. It can't yeah. happen post, but if you warn it pre, you know, th- there might be something in this from the the, the way the Turkish Super League and, and the, the Federation are handling this, because that, 
that is a serious, you know, Arteta, I don't know how to control my emotions. Well, you mm. might f***ing control them if it might cost you the title. How about that, pal? You know, mm. I like that. Sorry, Tim. Oh, yeah. Sorry, Tim. I'm writing these down. <laughs> um, yeah, but by the way, I was thinking about, you know, it, the immediacy of of trying to minimize a, a, a situation like this would be to get some type of security team out and around the referees immediately following the follow final whistle. But then as I'm saying that, I'm I'm thinking to myself, why why should we allow it to get to that point? Yeah. Sad. Why why what yeah, I mean, why would you need to have I mean, it, may, maybe it's as easy as to say there's like a no entry, you know, like a like when uh when the referees go over to the monitor for VAR, um maybe there's just a, a you know, a a, a 15 foot box that okay, this is the designated referee spot. No, but I mean, you know, then then the humanity side, the ability to shake the hands of the referees and all of that stuff after, you know, the 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 gentleman-esque type of feel to the game is lost if you yeah, I, I, I horse left the stable, man. And I and I and I don't know how to get that horse back inside. Yeah, I mean you can't do that, but let's maybe try and keep them um, on the farm as opposed yeah, to running wild in the streets. Um Dunny, we're out of time. Always a pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. Cheers, mate. Uh, that's Brian Dunseth, who hosts the program Week in the Tackle. I'm Tom Money, who does it alongside him. Tim Horsey's not here right now, but he will produce the program in post. And we'll have another program for you next week. See you then. 